Choices, 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 choices. You know, in the end of 2017, we all made a lot of choices, probably. Um, to have 2018 be different than what 2017 was like, and might have been for you, your diet, or your finances, or your relationships. It could have been any number of things that you thought, hey, you know what, I'm going to make an intentional choice that 2018 will be different than 2017. We call them resolutions, right? So let me ask you this. How well are you doing with your resolutions? For those of you who made resolutions, how well are you doing? Statistics show that 13% of people have already quit their resolutions one week into the new year. They've already failed and have abandoned what they had determined was going to be an intentional change for the new year. And then, because they have failed, they have already decided that the old habits were better or that they were more used to them. And so they went back into an old way of life. For me, I have not failed, um, mainly because I haven't started any yet. You know, it's like I've made resolutions, I just haven't started them yet. And so I really haven't failed at them. (laughs) That's a little loophole I discovered that I'm kind of proud of, you know, so it keeps me me going. But you can't throw me into that 13%, but statistics will say that 97% of people will not accomplish the goals that they set out for themselves. 97% of people will not accomplish the resolutions that they have set out for themselves. That at some point, discipline is going to break down, and we're going to resort to which we know, which, of course, is how we lived our life in the past. We're going to resort to what we know, which is how we lived our life in the past. And the reason this is the case is because we set, we tend to set, unattainable goals for undisciplined people. Goals that are so lofty and so large, but we're undisciplined people, so we're never going to accomplish the goals that we set out for ourselves, right? I plan to lose 20 pounds, right? That's a, that's a big goal. Um, and I'm going to do this by March. No, no, no. It's, that's, that's, that's unrealistic. June 1st, all right? June 1st. You know, by the end of December, 20 pounds are going to be gone, okay? But that's the thing, right? 20 pounds within the course of a year, that's so lofty and unattainable, and we've set our sights so far ahead that we've actually built failure into the plan. I mean, I, I have till June, oh, and I have till December to lose 20 pounds. Well, it's June 7th, so you know what? Yeah, let's go out for pizza tonight. I have till December to lose 20 pounds. I can have a cheat day here and there. Man, it's December 8th. I don't need to get up in the morning to go to the gym. I have till December to lose 20 pounds. I can build a cheat day and do it here or there. So we've actually built failure into the plan when you set your goal so far ahead into the future. And then we let our old selves tied to old behaviors persist. And we justify them. And we let them breathe and we let them live. But the thing is, we want transformation, right? That's the reason why we make resolutions. We don't want 2018 to be like 2017. We don't want want tomorrow to be like today. And so we make goals. We make resolutions. But transformation requires new action, not just new thinking. New thinking is easy, right? That's what we all do. New thinking is easy. At the end of 2017, we all began to think differently about how we could be different in 2018. But new action requires intention and it requires discipline. So what would happen if I took my New Year's resolution and instead of trying to say, you know, my, my entire year I'm trying to hopefully accomplish this, what if, what if I made that a new month resolution? This is my January resolution. And then we take that new month resolution, we boil it down to a new week's resolution. And then we take that new week's resolution, we boil it down to a new day resolution. And then we take that new day resolution, we boil it down to the next hour resolution. Here is how I want my next hour to be lived. Here is the goal that I'm going to set forth for myself in the next hour. 
Here's what I want to accomplish. Here's how I want my life to be lived. And I'm going to be intentional about living my life in the next hour. See, maybe my goal shouldn't be to lose 20 pounds between now and the end of 2018. But maybe my goal should be today I plan to walk 10,000 steps. And when I go out to lunch today, instead of ordering the cheesesteak, I'm going to order the salad for lunch. Decisions are right in front of you. It can't be the whole lengthy, year-long decision-making process. It needs to be the decision directly in front of you. See, I have a choice in front of me right now, and if I realize that and take it captive and then realize it, that when that choice is made, then I have a new choice to make immediately following that one. And when I make that now choice, I have another choice in front of me, and every step I take, literally, I have a new choice that needs to be made. And I can begin to steer my life in a new direction. And my hope for all of us is that the resolution that would foundationalize and ground every other daily resolution that we make would be that we desire more of Jesus and less of us. More of Jesus, less of Ross. More of Jesus, less of Ross. More of Jesus, less of Ross. Because becoming like Jesus and capturing God's image in Jesus Christ is going to create a context for my life and also for everybody's life that I come in contact with. Or hopefully they will be able to thrive within. We're talking about legacy after all. We're talking about what we're going to pass down to the next generation. And here's why I I, I say that. I think that this life of Christ is the best um, pathway for a legacy to be left. Here's why I say that. If I am selfish, right, if I am at the center of my ambition and self-promotion and self-aggrandizement is my goal, if my life is really all about me and more of me and more of me and more of me and more of me and I advocate and I fight for me, then I'm going to shape a world that is stingy And I'm going to shape a world that is impatient. And I'm going to shape a world that is unjust and unfair and angry. Because at the center of my life is me. And at the end of all of my goals is me. So of course I'm not going to be generous. Why would I ever be generous? Why would I ever consider even being generous? Because that is giving of what is mine for the sake of somebody else. Of course I'm not going to be generous. Of course I'm going to be stingy. Of course I'm going to be greedy. It's all about me after all. And if something doesn't go my way, of course uh, you're going to hear about it. Of course I'm going to scream and pout and throw a pity party. Of course you're going to hear it. Because I'm not pleased with how my life is going. And if someone gets in my way, then of course I'm going to push and I'm going to shove because I have somewhere I need to be. And you might be thinking, Ross, nobody actually lives their life that way. Nobody's actually that rude. Nobody's actually that calloused. But isn't that what sin is? The self-centered heart? Aren't we all just black holes sucking everything else into us? Isn't that what sin is? And if we let that sin prevail, if we do not kill that sin through the power and the strength of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and his Holy Spirit within us, we do not kill that sin, then that is exactly the kind of world that we are going to create. A stingy, greedy, angry, unjust, unfair world. Not only for ourselves, but for the next generation behind us. And the only way to leave a legacy and shape a world that is not one giant cesspool of selfish people is to learn to love. To become love and then also to teach love to everybody coming behind us. So there is a book that is part of the Jewish Bible or what we call the Old Testament that chronicles this this story in the life of the Israelites. The Israelites had been enslaved to the Egyptians but through Moses and a series of plagues They were released, but there were a series of complaints 
and a series of misdeeds that kept them enslaved for the next 40 years, not enslaved to the Egyptians, enslaved to themselves, and they're enslaved to their own wanderings, as they were led uh, basically throughout the desert waiting to enter into God's promise for them. So Moses, their leader, is now 120 years old. He's standing on top of Mount Horeb, which is on the other side of the Jordan River across from Israel. He's standing uh, in the, the Mount Horeb, and he recites the law for the Israelites. He restates what God wants for his people. He restates God's instructions on how to live their life. And as a summation of this, he's going to summarize. Here's the very center. He boils everything down to one simple command. Here is what I hope you will take away from this. Here is what I hope you Israelites will learn. Here is what God is instructing you to do. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. You may recognize some of these from Jesus' commands. If you were a New Testament reader, a follower of Jesus, you may recognize that Jesus um, had said this is the first and greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He didn't pull that out of thin air. He borrowed it from Deuteronomy. So Moses is now on top of this mountain. He instructs the Israelites on how to live their life. And then he passes the mantle of leadership on to Joshua, who will lead the Israelites into the land, destroy the Canaanites living there, and then occupy the land themselves. And so they do so with mediocre success. They don't actually uh, um, destroy everybody living in the land. Um, But now at the end of Joshua's life, he's reflecting on all God's accomplishments accomplishments through his people, and he addresses the Israelite people. Joshua says this, The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land in which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. So, in other words, do not think for a moment, Israelites, that you had anything to do with your success. This was all God who did all this. You are fully dependent on God. God has been faithful to you by, by uh, giving you what he had promised. It was God who had done the work. And so Joshua steps in. He now addresses the people. Because of what you have seen God do, right? Not only in releasing the Israelites out of bondage from the Egypt, not only from parting the Red Sea and, and driving the, the Israelite people through it, not only from giving you the land that he promised you would occupy, all of this you have seen God do. Therefore, fear the Lord. Fear God and serve him faithfully. Serve God faithfully. Now, here's the thing. You can't faithfully serve two opposing parties. Faithfulness assumes singularity. It assumes single devotion. And so Joshua says, Therefore, throw away the gods your fathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Isn't it odd that Joshua has to say this? Isn't it odd that Joshua has to tell the Israelites, Yeah, you guys don't... uh, You claim to follow God, right? You claim to serve God, but why do you have all these little trinket idols in your midst? Why do you have all the pagan idols? Why do you, why do you hold on to all the other gods that, that the Egyptians worshipped and your forefathers worshipped? Why are you holding on to all of these things? After everything that you've seen God accomplish, why are you still clinging to the fake gods of Egypt? The Israelites are walking around with idols in their pockets. Why? It's because they trust in the fake gods. This is trust, man. If I have a pagan idol at war, held close to me when I am going out in 
fighting because, is because I believe that this pagan god of war will help secure my victory. Isn't that trust? Aren't I putting my trust in this pagan deity and this little idol that I carry along with me? Isn't that putting faith in something other than the Lord? You're not following the Lord faithfully because you have these little trinket idols still in your midst. You're still clinging to the false and the fake gods of the Egyptians. So if you really want to serve the Lord, then throw them away and trust in God. Get rid of your fake gods. Show by your action, in other words, that you want to serve the Lord. But, he says, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So here's the thing. If you don't want to serve the Lord, fine. That's your prerogative to do so. You have that choice. You have that option before. If you do not want to serve the Lord, fine. But my friends, stop being so wishy-washy about it. Make a choice. Make a choice regarding your service. Make a choice regarding who you are going to serve. Did you know, as the kid president told us, that um, we make roughly 7,000 intentional decisions every single day? As to who we are going to serve, every single day we're making 7,000 intentional decisions. You know, you wake up in the morning and your alarm is going off and you make an intentional decision as to whether you're going to hit the snooze button, whether you're going to take that that alarm clock or that phone and throw it across the room, hopefully it smashes and stops and shuts itself off, or whether you're going to adhere to its warning and get out of bed. We make that intentional decision. For each of us, it may be different, right? We go and we brush our teeth. And that's in a choice we make, and we hop in the shower, and then we choose the water temperature by which we shower under, and we choose glasses or contacts, and you choose the outfit you're going to wear, and you choose what to eat for breakfast, and then every eight seconds throughout your day, literally every eight seconds throughout the day, you are making an intentional decision. Now, sometimes, of course, um, decisions come in flurries, and so you make a whole clump of decisions at one time. Other times, you're just sitting there drooling over your breakfast, and you're not thinking about anything, still waking up from the day, and there's no decisions being made, right? There's no choices being made. You're just living your life. But generally, every eight seconds, you have a new option before you as to how you're going to live your life. You have a new option as to choose what you're going to do with your life. And Joshua is, is screaming at the Israelites, my friends, be intentional. You have 7,000 choices in your day. You have 7,000 opportunities to serve the Lord. Do so. Do so. The word, trans, the word that we translate day here is the word yom in Hebrew. It, it's a, day is a very fine translation, but it's really an unspecified period of time. It could mean a second. It could mean a minute. It could mean an hour. It could mean a day. It could mean 10,000 years. It could mean a generation. It could mean any unspecified period of time. And so the point is that we are to be intentional with each passing decision as to whom we are going to serve. That's what Joshua is telling the Israelites. Choose this day who you're going to serve. Choose this moment who you're going to serve. And when this moment passes, choose again who you're going to serve. And when that moment passes, choose again whom you're going to serve. But venture with me into the nature of service for a minute. Aren't we all servants of something or of someone? All you have to do is ask and to look at your priorities and your choices, and you'll discover very quickly who you are a master to or who who you are a servant to, who is your master. Ask yourself, who do my choices declare I am serving? Because your choices are declaring exactly who you are serving. Are you serving your bank account? 
Does your work, your job, your attempts to climb the corporate ladder and your potential for money dictate your choices? Because those choices will indicate, will tell who your master is. Or how about your guilt? Maybe you are a servant to your guilt. Do you do what you do because you're haunted by your past behavior? Is that why you do what you do? You're, you're haunted by past behavior? Or maybe you're, you're a servant to your regrets. Are you living today because you didn't do something yesterday? Or maybe you're a servant to other people because you're just a people pleaser. And you bend to everybody else and you never get your way and you never do what's healthy for you because you're always hoping to please everybody else. You're a servant to everybody else. Or maybe your choices are made to foster your own reputation and you're a servant to yourself and you're a servant to your own reputation or whatever you can do to bolster yourself to make your image more appealing to the rest of the world. And maybe for you it's dictating um, how your wife behaves or your, your husband behaves or how they dress even or how your children behave or how your children dress because you, you think the world is looking at them and it's going to be a poor reflection on you. And so you dictate how everybody else lives their life because you're a servant to your own reputation. Or maybe your choices are driven by sex and you lie and you cheat to hide and cover up who your master really is. But isn't it true that we're all servants to a master? We're all servants to a master. Something drives us to act the way that we do and the choices we make concerning our lives indicate who that master is. Your choices declare who you are serving. They tell the world, they tell you, they tell everybody else exactly who you are serving. And so all Joshua is saying is that if you want to be the servant of the Lord, if you want the Lord to be your master, then make the intentional choice to be a servant of the Lord. That with every eight seconds that passes and another choice comes your way, make the intentional choice to put the Lord first, to do what is right, to fight for what is just. Choose humility. Choose the sacrificial line. Choose to give. Choose generosity. Choose to prioritize the needs of others above yourself. Let somebody else go first. As you wake up in the morning and you realize that God has gifted you with air in your lungs and breath in your lungs and a body that functions, recognize that your body then is in service to the Lord in this day. And so as you choose to brush your teeth because you recognize your body as a house not only for your spirit but for his spirit, you choose to brush your teeth because why? You're caring for your body. And then you sit down to eat and then you have an option between donuts or protein as you start your day off. And you make a choice for the better, whatever that may be to you. You make the choice for the better because your body is in service to God and you're a service to the Lord. You drive along the road and you let things get into your mind through what you listen to on the radio. And you make a choice as to what that's going to be. And then you have interactions with other drivers along the road. And, and you have to move along to how they move along the road. And you have a decision and a choice as to how you are going to interact with other drivers on the road. And then you get to work and you have to choose a parking spot. And of course, we all try to get as close as we possibly can to the building, right? Because who wants to walk in this cold? But, but what if it means to serve the Lord that you let somebody else take a closer spot and you actually choose a further spot because that means somebody else gets to walk further. You know, uh, one of the first things I said as we were talking as we opened this church four years ago, I, um, I challenged the, that initial 80 people or so that was with us to park as far away from the building as you could. 
because that would leave the, the closer spots to the church building for guests and for, for other people who, who weren't currently attending restoration at the time. And uh, my friend Dave Lewis, um, some of you know Dave Lewis, he took this so seriously. Every single week he would park the furthest spot from the building, 73 years old. If he was with us this morning, he would, he would come even from that spot and walk across in what, two degree weather. Why? Because he is a servant of the Lord and he wants to create those opportunities for other people to have a more comfortable life. And then you get to work and you have to make a choice as to how you're going to speak and if you're going to be, you know, deal with your workings with integrity. And do your work with integrity or are you gonna, how are you going to speak about your coworkers? Slander, gossip, is that going to be accepted? You go to the store after work and, and you're walking by, you know, a, a, a person who's emptying their cart are you going to take that cart for them and so they don't have to walk the, the distance in this frigid weather to the cart corral? Are you going to take it for them? And then you get home and you have an opportunity to have a meaningful conversation with your children at the dinner table. If you have children, you take time with your children to read to them and you ask them how their day was and you tell them about what you learned and you talk about what they learned and you talk about what God has spoken into you today and then you ask them how they might apply that to their own lives. And then when you're at a party, I mean, you, you have a choice as to whether you're going to drink or not. And maybe you choose not to drink, not because drinking in and of itself is wrong, but because you know that if you begin to drinking that you can't quit. And if you give up your ability to make choices through being intoxicated, you know that you are still responsible for the choices that you make. And the whole point of all of this is that with every eight seconds comes a new choice. And we need to be intentional about what that choice is going to be. We have to be deliberate and disciplined about what that choice is going to be if we choose to serve the Lord rather than serve ourselves. You see, how the story continues is so fascinating. Remember, this is a series on legacy, and so the question we're asking is, how did their daily, moment-by-moment decisions help to shape the context for life that their community was going to live in, but also the next generation was going to inherit? And so Joshua challenges them with this choice to serve the Lord or to serve the, the foreign, lifeless gods of their ancestors. And the people respond by saying this, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They, they then rehash, you know, all the wonderful things that God had done for them over, over the years. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua is obviously very confused and he's very reluctant to agree and he's very skeptical about their ability to do this. So he says, guys, you're not able to serve the Lord. You're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And they replied, yes, we are witnesses. See, Joshua was skeptical that the people were actually going to serve the Lord, that they were going to abandon their lifeless foreign idols. He says something so interesting and a little funny and very confusing, considering everything that they have just said. We so desire to serve the Lord. Yes, we will serve the Lord. We are witnesses against ourselves. We are going to serve the Lord. And so Joshua concludes, now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you. Why do you still have the foreign gods in your midst? Why are you still clinging to the foreign gods? If you truly desire to serve the Lord, then get rid of them. Why do you still cling to them? Why are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? You claim to want to serve the Lord, but here you are with the foreign gods in your camp, clinging to them to be your provider and your victory and your security. 
If you really want to, to serve the Lord, then you need to do so faithfully. You need to do with a single-hearted devotion. And so throw away and burn and cast into the sea, stomp them underfoot, whatever you need to do, the foreign gods that you are servants to. And then we think he's going to say, and serve the Lord. Throw away those foreign gods that are among you and serve the Lord. Because already he's already told them to serve the Lord seven times. They've already agreed five times to serve the Lord. And so we think Joshua's going to say, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and serve the Lord. But that's not what he says. He says, and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Yield your hearts, submit your hearts, surrender them. Let God and his priorities go first in your heart and let that radiate to the rest of your life. Yield your hearts. See, this is the key and the most important component of this whole conversation that he's having. Don't just stop acknowledging all the foreign gods in your midst. Right? Don't just get rid of them. Don't just throw them away. But yield your hearts to the one true God. Submit your hearts. Surrender your hearts to the one true God. And each decision made to the priorities of the one true God. Or in other words, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But as good as the people's intentions were, they just couldn't do it. The people just couldn't do it. Yes, okay, they could obey God. They could go through the rituals of obeying God. They could follow the rules. They could get rid of the physical idols. And they did get rid of the physical idols. They could do what they were supposed to do in regards to the cleanliness rituals and in regards to the festival observances and to obeying and being obedient and observing the Sabbath. They could stay away from the foreign gods, yes, but could the people yield their hearts to God? See, the people actively went through the motions of obeying God with their strength, but they did not surrender their hearts to God in love. And you might ask, well, how do you know this, Ross? Well, if every eight seconds I am asking myself, with this choice, with the choice that I have in front of me, with the options that are before me, with the choice I have in front of me, what does it mean to love God, to submit to God, to yield my heart to Him, and allow His priorities to be my priorities, then every eight seconds I am making a choice to serve my wife and my children and to put others first and to be kind even when someone's screaming at me, to be a gentle driver to go out of my way to bless someone, to be generous and, and help shaping a context for my household and, and for the next generation of love. See, I'm developing a legacy, and within that created context, my children are going to learn what love looks like. And they're going to see what love looks like and what service looks like, and they're going to understand the benefit and the joy of both. And with every eight seconds, I am asking myself what it means to serve the Lord. Don't you think that my life is going to reflect that? If with every eight seconds I am asking myself, what does it mean to have a yielded heart to God, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, to be a servant of the Lord, isn't my life going to reflect that? Isn't it going to implicate the way I serve and the decisions I make and the way I use my money and the relationships I create? And so how do I know that the Israelites obeyed God but didn't yield their hearts? Well, all you have to do is ask their children. You know, did you ever see your dad go out of his way to serve another person? Did you ever see your dad give of what was rightfully his so that someone's el someone else's life might be improved? 
When he spoke to your mother, did he do so gently and did he do so kindly? When he spoke to you, did he do so with respect and with compassion? Was he concerned for hurting people and extend grace and mercy and compassion to brokenness when he sought? Did you ever see your dad in prayer or reading his word? And then did he ever pray over you and speak God's word over you? And the Israelite children would have said, you know, now that you come to think about it, no. I never did experience any of that. You know, each day he would go to work amidst the world full of their vulgarity and the profanity and their idol worship, and he would bring that vulgarity and that profanity back home with him. And he, calls, he would call upon my mother to serve him and to cook for him, and, and when something wasn't to his pleasing, he would yell and he would scream and he would beat. And then he would sit down with his neighbors and he would gamble and he would get drunk, and then I would go and I would ask him for something. He would tell me I was just a nuisance and that I should get out of his way. Well, did you guys ever attend the temple? You know, did, did you ever go to this, uh, offer sacrifices? Did you uh, obey the Sabbath? Well, yeah, of course we did. You know, we, we did that all the time, the Israelite children would say. We were very religious, actually. Very religious. Well, did, did you guys ever talk about God outside of the Sabbath? Like, you know, while you're eating at the table or walking along the road or when you're lying down and when you're getting up, like Moses instructed the Israelites? Did you ever do any of that? Did you ever, uh, you know, did your parents ever talk to you about all the incredible things that God had done for them? And the Israelite children would say, no. No, you know, our life actually looks very much like all of the other pagan families that we live amidst. You know, instead of worshiping Baal, instead of offering sacrifices to Baal and offering sacrifices to Astra, we just offer sacrifices to Yahweh, the God of Israel. That's really the only difference between us and them. Well, you know, do, do you think that you're going to continue to pursue Yahweh, the God of Israel, you know, when, when you're a father, when you're out of the house? And the Israelite children would probably say no. Because, you know what, I really don't see the point in it. There's no power in it. I really don't see the point in continuing this tradition. It's not like it's any different than anybody else is doing. I'm just going to go my own way. We'll talk about this in a few weeks, but the reason in our modern day, the reason that so many 18-year-olds ditch the Christian faith when they go off to college is because Christianity, for most of them, was just a religious system that they inherited, that they were put within. There wasn't a context of love. There was no context of life that they grew up in. And so to understand if the Israelites in Joshua's day actually yielded their hearts to God or just went through the motions of a religion, all you have to do is look at the legacy they left. All you have to do is look at the children that came after them. And so here's what we read in the book of Judges. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation, their children, in other words, grew up. But they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They did not even know who the Lord was. They hadn't heard any of the stories about what God had done for his people. That was, a nev- that was never a conversation that these parents had with their children. It wasn't the context that these children grew up in. And then these children, these Israelites, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord because they knew no other way. See, the children of those men and women who threw away their idols, they didn't even know who God was nor what he had done for them. Sure, we threw our idols away. We trashed the idols. We got rid of the foreign gods, but we never yielded our hearts to the Lord. 
All we did was go through different motions. I'm going to invite the van forward, and we're going to reflect on this for just one moment. So my friends, generally, every eight seconds, you have a new decision to make. You have a new opportunity in front of you every eight seconds to either submit your life and your heart to the Lord or submit your life and your heart to yourself. And I hope that we can be a people who recognize that a yielded heart is an intentional heart. A yielded heart is an intentional heart choosing consistently to love God and love others. There we go. But also that we would be a people who are exploring the mystery of what that means because it is a mystery. And with every eight seconds pass, you might be confused as to exactly what my role is right now in a person who has a yielded heart to God. So you need to enter into the exploration and the mystery of what that means. And as you do so, my prayer for all of us is that we would grow not only in our understanding of what it means to be a person bent in love for other people, but that we would, more importantly, be able to apply that to other people. Because this, I think, this intentionality, this choosing, second by second, minute by minute, to yield our hearts to God is how we are going to leave a legacy, not only for our current context, but also for the context and the families and the children and the generations that are coming after us. And so this morning, we are going to celebrate communion. We're going to remember what Christ had done for us, and this is a choice that you make. You see, we celebrate communion through um, taking bread and taking juice within our, within our tradition. And, and we take a bread and we dip it into juice. And the bread is symbolic of the broken body of Jesus. And the juice is symbolic of the spilled blood of Jesus on our behalf. It's a choice that he made, a deliberate and intentional choice that he made to save us in this regard. And by doing so in such a horrible fashion. But for those of us who are choosing to follow Jesus, taking the bread and taking the cup is an indication of something that we want within ourselves as well. It's not just a religious tradition. Let's not just pass down a bunch of traditions to our children, to the next generations. Let us live a life of a yielded heart. And so my challenge to you this morning, that if you want to come and receive communion, it is because you want a yielded heart before God, a surrendered heart, a submitted heart before God, and you are crying out to God, please, by your spirit, and by your power, Father, give me strength and wisdom with each eight seconds as they pass to make the choice to be a servant of you. And if you're not at that place, if you're like, you know, I'm still exploring this whole Jesus thing, that's cool. You can sit in your chair. You do not have to come forward. There's no shame in that. But let us be a body of people who remember what Christ had done for us and then allow that to inform us of the choices then we ought to make.